What's it like to manage artists and big projects in the music business? And could you get into that field if you wanted to? Also, when you face those times when you think you're in too deep with a big project, how should you handle it? We'll hear about this today. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. It's Ian Cleverton here, and welcome to the audio podcast designed to help anyone who wishes to further themselves with their personal hobbies and professional development, the focus in this series being on the creative arts. Today, I catch up with Neil Pearson, founder of Sounds Just Fine, an artist management and market development agency for the music business. Neil works with some of the biggest names in the folk, roots and acoustic music world, both nationally and internationally, with particular ties to the US and Canadian music scene. Alongside managing a portfolio of artists, he's also known for project managing some of the best-known collaborations in the folk and roots world over the last few years, culminating in performances at the Proms at the Royal Albert Hall and Celtic Connections in Glasgow, to name but two. I was introduced to Neil by last week's guest, Finlay Napier, with whom Neil has worked closely on both projects and individually. I wanted to have a managerial perspective of the music business for this series, and Finn said there's probably no one better than Neil. Hopefully, you'll see why by the end of the interview. However, you'll also hear a really interesting backstory that led to his current work. So let's dive into the interview. Neil Pearson, welcome to Half Hour Mentor. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you, Ian. Yeah, and you too. Um, I always ask my guests this first question is, going back to your teenage years, what was the first job or career you wanted to do? So I didn't have much of a clue. But I kind of got settled into education. It was something I understood. Uh, I uh, grew up in Keithley, West Yorkshire, where there weren't a huge amount of options. So I ended up going off to university to do primary school teaching. So that was something I could do without thinking about it, what I wanted to do. And it was a way of getting out of town, basically. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and did you get into primary school teaching at some stage? Not at all. So actually, I did a couple of years Got and thought, actually, I'll just take a little break here. So I took a year out, ended up getting a job, because uh, obviously you needed to earn something in this year. It, do, taking a year off to travel, a gap year to travel the world in Keithley, West Yorkshire, was not an option. So I, I ended up getting a job and things spiralled. I then got offered another job. And by the time I'd come to the end of that year, it kind of made no sense other than to just stay on the path I was on. Uh, And what jobs were you doing at this stage? So I ended up as a management trainee at WH Smith originally in Bradford. And part of that was when WH Smith used to sell video games and that was kind of what they put me in charge of. Which, you know, which as a 20-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old was pretty cool. And I then got offered a job to open and manage one of six of a really early video game chain uh, that was around the UK. And that was in Shrewsbury, a place I had no idea where it was. I obviously accepted the job, went at home and looked on a map, realised it wasn't a million miles from West Yorkshire. Uh, And that's how I ended up in Shrewsbury, where I am now. I think that job lasted for about a year and a half before the whole company went bust. And that was what, in my early 20s. And then I just kind of found my way and stayed in Shrewsbury. So, okay, so from gaming, I mean, you're very much involved in the music industry. We're going to explore that in a second. But how did did that step from Smiths to gaming shop to music 
work. Uh, okay. What was, your, so, what was your first toe dip into the music? So, so, so basically, all the way through my life, music has been huge. So very long story short, my 20s, I ended up working for Safeway as a human resources manager, you know, which actually was a nice, enjoyable job, quite enjoyed it. it wasn't very rewarding. I knew I didn't want to do it forever. In the me- meanwhile, my wife... She was head of biology and kind of working her way up through school. There was a moment in our late 20s, 28 maybe, where we were talking about, you know, maybe we should start a family. And we realised being so far away from home, we were kind of on our own. And the whole discussion was, okay, maybe I, maybe I could find a job to work from home. The, a job I love where I'm going to start my own business and I can stay at home if we're lucky enough to have children, basically. So this was in 1998, and I'd been ordering loads of records, sort of acoustic singer-songwriters from North America. This is way be- this is before online retailing had become a thing. So it was mail order. I was getting mail order things through, and I was sending off my credit card to a company in America, and they were shipping me the CDs I wanted. I kind of thought... I could do that. You know, there must be enough people in the UK who are interested in the niche that I'm in. And I'm quite, I'm a reasonably competent coder and computer guy. And this was right at the start of online trading. And I set up, I built my own website and shopping cart and shopping database and the whole thing. This was in 1999. Uh, On the 1st of February, 1999, Fish Records, which was the company I set up, launched. No customers, just an idea that there must be a niche of people out there who are interested in music that they can't find in the UK. It took a moment to get the trust of customers and build a customer base. I was very lucky. A customer of mine was a a good friend of Bob Harris, and he said to me, why don't you send Bob this particular, it was a Richard Schindel CD, uh, an American singer-songwriter. I sent it to Bob. Bob played it. Bob name-checked my company. My mailing list went from about 300 to about 900 over one weekend. And that was kind of the thing that that just started it going. The whole deal was about the business. I started on the 1st of February. I We had saved enough money for me not to take a salary for a whole year. So the deal was I needed to get to the end of the f- 1999 and the B enough in the enough promise in the business for it to look like it might not be a total disaster so on new year's eve 1999 i'd not taken a salary i'd not really made any money but i hadn't lost any money i bought a chinese takeaway and two bottles of champagne and that was my salary for the whole year that was it this is like this is what i've achieved basically um but the main list had grown enough i'd built enough contacts with small record labels in the US and the trust of enough independent artists that they were coming to me saying, would you carry my record? So we decided to just go for it. Okay, the business was viable. So I started 2000 knowing that this was kind of, I had to give it a go. I'd done enough to know that it was worthwhile. But when I was in that first year, I was looking to leverage as much support as I could get. And there was a a festival, a folk festival in Bridgenorth, the Bridgenorth Folk Festival. 
which was quite big, quite successful. And I got in touch with them very cheekily and said, hi, I'm a record shop working in your, I'm an online record shop. Never, I've always worked from home. Working in this genre, how much would it cost me to put an advert in your program or, you know, what does this look like? And the director of the festival said, if you can get a thousand flyers to me by the end of tomorrow, I will put them in the mail out that we're sending out to all our patrons for free. <laughs> by tomorrow. <laughs> well, so basically it's like, okay, so I, I, I hacked some ridiculous A5 flyer up in Word. My wife got them printed at school and guillotined and I dropped them off. This was a moment, but I think the thing that's important about this, I then went and said to this chap, thank you very much for helping me. Is there anything I can do? He said, would you like to come and volunteer at the festival? At which point that festival at that point was in my wife's school, the school she taught at. And she just went under no circumstances are you having anything to do with it. So the Bob Harris thing and being included in that flyer, in their mail out, were the two real key moments where I had enough reach to build my mailing list. I had some very big moments. So when Seth Lakeman's record got nominated for a Mercury, that was an independent release and you could only buy it through me. And Nick Jones, uh, the English folk artist, he had two records that you could only buy through me as well. So I had some really nice moments where I was selling thousands of each copy of these records to my mailing list. So business was actually going quite well. Bridge North Folk Festival was also doing very well. And it was looking to move to the county town of Shrewsbury because it's a bigger town. It's got more amenities. It's got more suitable sites. So that means you don't have to be on a school ground. Is this what became Shrewsbury Folk Festival? It is. So I saw the bit in the Shrewsbury Chronicle, the local paper, that said Bridge North Folk Festival is turning into Shrewsbury Folk Festival. So at that point, business was going well. But I was forever grateful to Alan Surtees, the director of Bridge North Folk Festival. And I saw an opportunity to say thank you. So when it was moving to Shrewsbury, I kind of had a, an opportunity to do that volunteer stint. And I wanted to, because without that moment, I don't think I would have quite had the business I had. So I got in touch again and said, look, you won't, you might not remember me. He did. But I said, look, at the time, I couldn't really volunteer. But I got into the well, I'd really like to pay you back. So, you know, is there anything I can do? Can I volunteer? Can I come help at the festival? I'm happy to give my time for free, whatever you need. That conversation very quickly turned into me being invited onto the festival committee in 2005, I think it was. And then I was kind of involved in a, in a big festival and running the business. The festival was definitely a side hustle. It paid very, you know, I was doing it because I wanted to do it, not because it was paying me money. I made a tiny bit for bits of my time, but really it was fun and enjoyable and you're involved in the big sexy festival booking big stages. I mean, it's exciting. It's a privilege, you know, programming is fun. And because I had a, a lot of links and knowledge and contacts in the US scene, that became very useful for Shrewsbury Folk Festival and the festival and, and kind of the artistic direction the festival went in. Alan Surtees, the big festival director, the artistic director, the owner, loved American music and I kind of was a specialist in it. So the two thought things really fitted together very nicely. 
And I would imagine that with the records that you were selling, it was probably you've started to work, I would imagine, with quite a lot of the artists for whom you were selling their, their records. Yeah, I mean, as a music fan, even selling these records, emailing these artists and having contact with them and just helping them was a thrill. I mean, a genuine thrill to be part of it. And, you know, many of them have become my friends and I've worked with lots of them down the line. But there's definitely moments in that journey of Fish Records where I couldn't believe my luck. Just getting sent free stuff and free records is exciting enough in and of itself. But when you get in promos and advances months ahead of schedule... I guess it felt like I was in the inner circle a little bit. And I wasn't. I was just like so tangentially linked to it. But it, it felt exciting and to be part of it. And then you do, they do become your friends. And then you do help them with a release. Or you help them get on the BBC radio. When you first get a thank you in a line of notes of a record, holy moly, that is quite a thing. Oh, great. That, and that never gets tired. I mean, you know, so there's just these moments and you think, how on earth did I get from just some sort of nerdy amateur fan to be part of it? And then from from being that to then actually helping bring them to the UK and present them on a very, you know, Shrewsbury is a fantastic festival. You know, there's moments where it's just like, how on, you know, it's unbelievable, really. Yeah, I can sense the theme of fighting that imposter syndrome developing here just by giving it a go. Can I now turn to the many musical projects that you've managed and which you're really known for? As I understand it, you bring some successful musicians in their own right together to work on a theme project. What was the first one that you worked on and how did you go about it? 2009 was the bicentennial of Charles Darwin's birth. And as a festival, we'd been throwing around, how do we celebrate this? Because the whole town was going into this big festival type of celebration of Darwin and we talked about commissioning musicians individually a bit like the radio ballads to sort of say well why don't you write a song about Charles Darwin and maybe we'd get bring them together to play it as part of their set but we we couldn't really find a way to make it not be boring really or have a bit more of a hook to it and it's like okay we're in Shropshire we've got this festival we've got Charles Darwin we want to do something at the festival so I put together a proposal that we could put a number of artists together in a house to create a concert, to create new work about Charles Darwin, and we will perform that concert at the festival. And amazingly enough, the festival director went, OK, why don't you put a budget on it? Why don't you flesh it out? I had no idea what I was doing. So green. Not a clue. So we did. We costed it out. And I think I can't quite remember. I think it came to about £35,000. Because renting a house, a big enough house for eight people to go into for a week is quite hard. Uh, you know, to keep them in a certain, in a quiet place away from others so that it's actually a working space. And then I kind of got into, okay, we need to speak to the Arts Council, we need to speak to the Town Council, we need to speak to the Darwin Festival people. And kind of at every turn, nobody stopped me. Nobody kind of went, this is nonsense. This just kind of went, okay, we can put in £10,000, we'll put in £8,000. And in the end, we ended up with a budget and with it covered. And all the way along this, I was terrified that I didn't know what I was doing. I just assumed someone would apprehend me at some point and tell me to stop. <laughs> and they never did. So, 
you get to the point where you you've actually got to do it. It's so funny looking back. I talk about this with on some of the other projects I've done. I just thought, okay, we need to write songs about Charles Darwin. So let's put eight songwriters in a house. Absolute terrible idea. Because they're all trying to occupy the same space. If you look at all the other projects I've done, the songwriters are balanced out with instrumentalists and people who bring lots of other skills to the table. So where egos getting in the way at this stage? Well, it's, it's interesting. Egos, egos an interesting word. I think it's more pressure that they put on themselves. So it had Chris Wood, Kareem Paul Watt, Jez Lowe, Emily Smith, Stu Hannah from Megson, Rachel McShane from Bellowhead, Krista Detour, who's an American singer-songwriter, and Mark Kirelli, who's also an American singer-songwriter. Honestly, the pressure, you look back now and it's like, what on earth were we doing? Because they had seven days. On the final day, they were performing this concert live in the brand new theatre in Shrewsbury, which in and of itself was stressful because the venue didn't know what they were doing. And we were recording it for a release. There was no backstop. There was no spare day. There was just, honestly, looking on it now, it was just crazy that we got it away and nothing went wrong. Because not only that, we didn't know what we were doing either. And BBC Radio 4 came into the house for a couple of days and made a a half-hour documentary on Kaleidoscope for it too. Oh, wow. So (laughs) there was a lot of stuff happening. Writing songs about Charles Darwin is really boring. Science is really boring to write songs about. So we were very lucky in that Randall Keynes, who is Darwin's great, great, great grandson, and he's like the he's the keeper of the family secrets, and he's he's a very enigmatic guy. And because I was kind of in that world at the time, because we were in with all the conversations with the Darwin people, he came and on the first night in the house. We got everyone together. We all sat on the big table. It was in a big farmhouse in Shropshire. A couple of bottles of wine, dinner, and he just regaled us with stories of Darwin. Stuff that's not in the books, stuff about little family secrets, little snippets. And a lot of these kind of made it into the songs. So actually, in the grand scheme of things, the concert went off really well as the first gig in a new theatre. Amazingly enough, the recording didn't go wrong. It could have, so everything could have gone wrong. And we ended up putting out a pretty successful CD. About three months ago, a chap got in touch and he wanted to talk about it because he said, oh, these songs are amazing. And this is like 14 years ago. I mean, he was a Darwin enthusiast, shall we say. But, you know, it's interesting that these things find their people. But to be fair to you, that you have proven yourself in your ability and your management at this stage in working with Alan to say, I put faith in you to work on it. It's not just done on a whim. Yeah, I mean, yeah, totally. And I think at the time, you just, and even now, you're ever thinking, I just hope I can do this. Because you're, you're forever hitting, and this is a constant from my career, I have this every day now, forever dealing with things that are slightly outside your comfort zone. At whatever level you are, you're always, there's always something you just think, holy moly, do I know what I'm doing? I've got much better at asking now and not worrying about it and just going, if I don't know, I'm going to find out what I need to know, rather than trying to make people think I know. And that's confidence, I think. You also spent several years, as I understand it, working at the English Folk Dance and Song Society, or EFTAS, as it's known. What did you learn there? 
the the experience with Eftus was actually very rewarding. That project went very well, and Eftus was changing a little bit. It was being becoming a bit less seen as the folk police and a bit less seen as looking backwards and was in a moment where it had got some new arts council funding for long-term development to support the industry. But basically, it's got Cecil Sharp House, it's got an education department, it's got a library. Didn't have much else other than those things. So they asked me if I would like to programme Cecil Sharp House. It's got three rooms, 420, 120 and 80 cap. And she said, look, I could do it remotely, but would I be interested in programming? Well, of course I would. The opportunity to put music you love in front of other people. Well, I mean, what a privilege. In a prestigious venue. Exactly. I had no idea what I was doing. I, I, I got schooled pretty quickly. Because when you're booking a festival, the only consideration you need to think is, is someone available and have I got enough money to book them? When you're booking a venue in particular in London, there's so many other nuances in that like agents and artists have got to share their gigs out. You can't just go to one venue all the time. You can't, you know, you make promises to people or you have got a plan as to where your next play is and what it looks like and what it feels like. I was very fortunate that I just went in with the bravado of a festival programmer and just got a load of nose back. And it was like, oh, this is not the gig I thought it was going to be. And an agent took me to one side and explained all that to me. She said, look, it's not about the money necessarily. It's about the timing, the rhythm, the understanding. And I hadn't even, I never considered it. I hadn't understood those things. So once I'd had my wings clipped a little bit and learned, I programmed Cecil Sharp House. And it was fun. So I did that for a year and apparently didn't lose them any money. So it was fine. But it's very easy to lose money as a programmer. Very easy. Can I have a look at uh, just, uh, I'm interested to know, you know, what are the big challenges that you're facing organising these from a, you know, a project manager's perspective? Uh, availability of everything is tedious and hard. Actually, organising the moment to get them together and write is kind of manageable. It's like when things get bigger and as they grow, and keeping things moving, that becomes increasingly difficult because musicians are not going to be defined by this project. They've got their, it's part of who they are, part of what they are. So one of the things is knowing when to stop, knowing when your project has reached its peak and coming out before you hit this moment of diminishing returns. And does that involve you listening to the musicians and thinking, actually, we've done enough now, for example? Uh, kind of, because... You just get a feeling for it. You, you, you just get a feeling. It's like, because everyone, and they're great things to do, and they're brilliant things to do when artists are out of a natural album cycle. But the nature of these things, they take years. If you look at the last big one I did, The Lost Words, that took a year from the moment we talked about it to getting the artists together. Right, from the like, shall we do this? It sounds like it could be fun, and it might not be terrible, to getting people together. It wasn't quite a year, it was, it was 11 months. Well, I they think. all have their own individual schedules, like Chris Drivers and the Junior to Totally. Of this one, yeah. Totally. And then, so then you're, you're building into, then you're trying, then you're forward thinking, right, we need to do this. And then you need to play some shows. At that point, you're already looking to, into people's diaries probably two years hence. You know, and that's a lot of someone to commit to. 
And then you get so, COVID in a way. <laughs> yeah, so the Lost Words is a good example. So we met in the late September and we toured in February. So that was pretty quick. But then we ended up doing some other stuff. And then it really gets complicated because people are happy to sign up to a certain amount of commitment. Yeah, we can do this. I can come on this retreat. I can do this little bit of recording. I can guarantee myself for these four dates. The minute you then start getting into other things. So we did, like the Lost Words is a good example, because we ended up then doing a BBC prom at the Albert Hall. And we did a one-off concert at the Natural History Museum. Like in and of themselves, they are massively huge sexy gigs. Any artist and any production crew are going to get excited about. But the amount of effort it takes to just do those things is mm. Herculean. It's huge. Because, you know, and everyone wants to do their best. And with The Lost Words, we then made a second record. We went to Real World and made a second record. And we did a big tour of that. And it's just kind of understanding when is it time to stop. Now, that's never to say that none of these projects can come back out for high days and holidays. Because of course they can. I'm sure that Lost Words will continually be asked for shows. I'm sure it'll almost continually be told no, because everyone's got their own. But there'll be a moment where it just all gels. And it's like, you know, we could probably do, they could probably do a show. One thing I just wanted to ask, I mean, thank you ever so much for that just great rundown of what you've done and how you've tackled it along the way. You know, I think the message that I'm picking up from this is that, okay, you said you've just got to give it a go. But by giving it a go, you learn, you know, you learn from mistakes and you learn from things that go well. But that is a bank of experience that allows you to have more confidence in saying that you can give it a go. You've just got to give it a go. What what are the plans for the future then? All that you've got is fantastic wealth and people can see on the website. What are your plans for the future? So in 2018, I was beginning to feel I'd done all I could at Eftus. Oh, actually, that's not true. It's that I felt I wanted to go deeper into development than the role allowed me to. So I resigned with no real idea of what I was going to do. And I ended up doing the lost words as a free, as a total for independent freelancer. That was one thing that came out of that. But I ended up with a lot of the artists that I've worked with over the years coming to me and saying, could you help me with X? Could you help with why? Can you help me get help me do this piece of work? And it took a moment. I was very lucky. I got accepted onto the Claw Leadership course, which is a it's a leadership development course for leaders in the arts across all the arts. So you'd have people from the BBC, people from the South Bank, people from theatres, from art galleries. Like these are cultural leaders. And I was a ragtag, newly minted freelancer. It was hilarious that I got on it. But I did. And it kind of, that was the right thing. I was in the right place at the right time with that. It is there to just fill you full of ideas and motivation and ideas. And I came out of it going, okay, I'm, I'm just going to go for things. Since then, in the last few years, I still do Folk Alliance. I am hired by an arts council company to help run Folk Alliance for them as the industry, spe- as a folk specialist. And I... Ended up working for a Nashville-based management company, which was absolutely great fun. But ultimately, I was working for someone else. So I, last year, decided to let that go and just find my own way. And on the back of that, I managed three full-time clients, music clients. I managed John Smith, 
a Canadian band called The Small Glories and an American artist called Rachel Bayman, who are all on, you know, very successful record labels. They're all touring internationally. And you can get stuck into real development, real market development, strategy, long-term, how do we get from A to B? But on top of that, I also still do lots of one-off consultancies, which are quite fun. But occasionally I'll have an artist who'll come to me and say, can you help me with a project? Because mo- I would say that Motar, most musicians in the folk, root, singer-songwriter, wh- whatever you want to call it, don't need full-time management. They just need help on some things some of the time. And it's easy. They see that with where they need it in other areas like PR. You say, OK, it's OK. So we can go hire someone to help me solve this problem. So I will probably have two or three of these on the go at any one time where I'll probably take them on or say, look, let's do 18 months together. I'll help you get from A to B and we'll have some goals at the end of it. And that can be based around album releases. It can be about market development. It can be about anything as to where they feel they need support. Uh, I turn down way more than I can take on. But it's fun. It's nice to not be a gatekeeper, to kind of just share all the assimilated knowledge and all the things I've learned. And I actually still do loads of just half-hour chats with artists. I'll chat with Finn Napier often. He'll ring me up and say, what do you think? All of the friends and professionals I've met over the years, there's still quite a lot of that. I, I can always, I just remember that I was very fortunate that I had kindness shown to me a, in joining Shrewsbury Folk Festival. Someone would help me when I didn't know what I was doing, like Bob Harris gave me a plug when he didn't need to. So I think it's kind of incumbent on me to be that person for other people when I can do it, where it makes sense. So kind of that's where I am. I'm kind of fully stuck into artist development and market development at quite a high level, but still really enjoying helping the DIYers where it makes sense. That's great. And what a great career journey, Neil. Thanks very much for for sharing uh, that with us. I've got one final question I ask all of my guests, and that is knowing what you know now with all of that experience that you shared with us, what one piece of advice would you give that early 20s based in Keithley self of yours? Wow. I think think the, the teenage me would look at myself and probably couldn't believe my look. I think the thing is, I went through my 20s scared of failure, scared of putting myself in a situation where I could be seen to fail. And actually, it's only having the kindness of Alan saying, I've got your back. Don't you worry. If this goes wrong, it's my name on the door. It's confidence. It's self-belief. It's not worrying what other people think, whether that's pride, ego, or a mixture of all those things, however it shakes down. I think my sort of shy reserve kind of, this isn't for me, I can't do it, almost feeling I didn't belong there. I kind of wish I'd started 10 years sooner because there's no, I don't think there was anything I did in my 30s I couldn't have done in my 20s. I mean, it's not, it's not a regret because I'm fortunate to have got where I've got to and I love my work, but I was kind of always waiting for permission. The only way to do it is to do it. I've got I have no idea what I was waiting for, really. Neil Pearson, thanks very much for joining Half Hour Mentor. Thank you very much, Ian. Nice to chat. Go and have a look at the wealth of projects that Neil's been responsible for on his website. Once you've seen them, you'll be shocked to hear him say statements like, I didn't know what I was doing. I just hope I can do this. And I was very fortunate. 
This is the 19th interview I've conducted for the Half Hour Mentor series so far, and the vast majority of my guests have displayed some form of imposter syndrome. I just hope that you gain some confidence after listening to such high-profile guests, to the degree that it encourages you to give a go to whatever challenge you're facing and put your best foot forward. I love the way that Neil followed his passion by setting up an online record business as it was a great solution for his family life as well as helping pay the bills, even though it was a big risk for him at the time. That initial leap of faith and offering payback to the late Alan Surtees of Shrewsbury Folk Festival really helped him in his business develop to the degree that many well-known names in the music business seek Neil out for their own guidance and mentorship. My thanks go to Neil for his time and inspirational advice. You can find out more about him and his team at Sounds Just Fine by following the link to the website in the show notes. You can hear more from Neil in what is by now my traditional bonus episode where I fire some quick-fire questions at him. That will be released the day after this one. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the series wherever you get your pods and review the back catalogue. You can leave feedback about the episode through social media by searching for Half Hour Mentor or via the email link in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and until next time, bye for now. Mm -hmm.